Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of Empire Podcast Spoilers Specials. This one is dedicated to the first entry in the Dark Universe series, The Mummy. Whoa. Uh, yes, over the next hour or so, uh, we'll be delving deep into the adventures of Tom Cruise as he fights off a lady wrapped in bandages. Uh, I don't know, I wasn't really paying attention. Um, and joining me to talk about it is the man who wrote the Empire three-star review of this movie. Here to explain himself. No, I'm kidding. Dan Jolin, how are you? Salam alaikum. <laughs> what does that mean? It means hello in Egyptian. No, well, oh, Arabic. You're, you're so good. Peace yeah. be upon you is actually, I believe, what it means. Mm. Yeah, you say, say, say it as hello, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Watch I up. love how much you prepared for this. This is great. <laughs> this is really, really great. I am going to load up Duolingo so I can talk with you in Arabic over the next hour or so. Uh, and I'm, also here, you've just heard him. It's James Dyer. Please call me James Ra, the ever-living. I, I will not call you that. Um, how are you both? Um, good. Good. Excellent. Looking forward to getting into the mummy, so to speak, over yes. the next hour or so. Yes. Mm. Mm. Any oh, you, yeah. Any of you have Freudian issues? This movie did not address them in any way. It's fine. I, I did have mummy issues. It can be said. Yes, we do yes. have mummy issues. And we will be getting uh, into them very, very soon. Very clever. See what I was doing. I set you up. Yeah. You know, Wrap it up, Chris. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the puns are flowing. Quick and fast. But before we delve deep into the mind of Alex Kurtzman. Let's hear from the man himself. Uh, he is the director of The Mummy. This is only his second directorial effort, but he has been a writer and producer of all sorts of films over the last few years. He's been on the Empire podcast before. Uh, didn't write this one, interestingly enough, or at least isn't credited with a screenplay. Uh, that goes to Dylan Cussman, David Kep, and Christopher McQuarrie, but I'm sure many, many other people had a bash at the old keyboard over the gestation period of The Mummy. Uh, but here is Alex Kurtzman talking about all sorts of stuff to Helen O'Hara. Uh, not only does he discuss, of course, the mummy in spoilerific detail, there is some discussion of the future of the Dark Universe as well. So I'm very excited to hear this because I haven't actually heard it myself. So this is going to be fun. We're well prepared, uh, but do enjoy this interview with Alex Kurtzman. I will say again, word to the wise, this is a spoiler special. So if you have not seen the mummy and you care about the spoilers for this film, do not listen to this interview. Do not go beyond this point. It is cursed and the great curse will come upon you. Uh, go and watch the film and then come back and listen to it and then listen to us afterwards. Here's Alex Kurtzman. Enjoy. Okay, so uh, welcome to the Empire Podcast, Alex Kurtzman. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, so we're here today, today to talk about The Mummy. You've been involved in this now for more than three years. You were announced as director three years ago and you were already attached, isn't that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Universal came to me, I guess it's probably now going on five years. Um, and originally I was approached as a producer uh, and they asked if I was would be interested in doing The Mummy and I jumped at it because um, I love the Universal Monsters and um, I was intrigued by the idea of of finding a new way to, to tell the story. Mm. Um, and it took a long time to figure out a new way to tell the story. Um, and the idea of building the larger universe did not exist when this all started. So that, that kind of evolved as the mummy evolved. I was going to ask you that actually, because you know other directors involved in other shared universes have talked about the pressures that can bring and the opportunities mm -hmm. that can bring. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, cause you're there already, you're writing as well as directing, you've mm -hmm. got the chance to kind of, weave those in and, and kind of, I guess, set up the rules for everybody else to play with. Yeah. I mean, you know, for us, th definitely there's rules that we're setting up and we spent a lot of time talking about what the rules were. Um, 
I, I, I think I should start by saying I think that the, the most important thing for me and for all of us was to, to say we want to deliver a satisfying mummy movie, first and foremost. And if we can do that and in the context of that, open the door to the larger dark universe, then great. You know? And I think that meant not overwhelming the audience with too much information about the rest of the universe, but actually just teasing it. And, and, and really presenting information um, to the audience through the, through the point of view of Tom's character, Nick, in that it was relevant to his experience in the film, as opposed to just, here's a lot of, a lot of stuff that isn't related to the movie. You know, that wasn't how we wanted to approach it. Um, but your question was actually about how, like, the pressure of it and, and how we, how we do it. Well, how you do it, but also like, I mean, I guess the, the, the pleasures of doing it, what advantages does it give you this time around? Um, I mean, there were so many amazing things that happened over the course of the five years of making this film. And, so many surprises. You know, if you told me at the beginning that Tom Cruise was going to be in the movie, I would have said, there's no way, you know? Um, if you told me that we were going to make the movie at the scope and scale that this movie has been made at, I, I would have not been surprised, but I would have been surprised, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I would have, uh, I, I think that what's interesting is that as we evolved The Mummy, we kind of came to the idea that, well, maybe one of the things that makes this story worth telling and makes it different from the other mummy movies is that the mummy actually exists in a larger world of gods and monsters. And maybe that's what Tom's character comes to understand over the course of the movie. And the minute that became an idea, suddenly we started thinking about the other monsters and how they would connect to both the mummy and to the, to the larger world. And, you know, the fun of it is, is working on developing the world, you know, as a kid, I loved these monsters so much. And I feel like for me, what defines the monster universe and defines the universal monsters very specifically as a, as really a genre unto itself, separate from horror, separate from slasher films, even though there are elements certainly of horror in this, in the world, um, is that you, uh, you, you are, you are scared of the monster and you feel tremendous sympathy and empathy for the monster. And that means that those films are deep character studies. They all were character studies and they reflect something so human, ironically about all of us, because what do the monsters want? They want to connect. They want to be loved. They want to fit in and they don't, and they never really will. Cause if they did, they wouldn't be monsters anymore. And I think we all feel a version of that or have felt a version of that. And that's why they, I think the legacy has endured for almost a hundred years now. I actually went back and watched the, the 1932 version yeah. of the mummy last night. Um, and I noticed, which I had totally forgotten. You, you open with the, the same quote or mm -hmm. a, a slightly different mm -hmm. version of the same. Yes. Quote. So did you, did you see the similarities throughout the film to the, to the, to the Karloff? I, I wanted to ask you to, mm -hmm. to talk about those a little mm -hmm. bit. I mean, how much did you sort of go back and look at, you know, specific scenes, specific mm -hmm. lines? Cause there were lots of like echoes in the yes. dialogue that I heard. Um, very consciously. Yeah. Um, that was the movie that I took my real inspiration from. And, um, I just loved that film as a kid. I loved the texture of it, the world creation of it, the, you know, the Karloff's performance was just so extraordinary in it. His and eyes are amazing. His eyes are amazing. And as you see, you know, in the close up, those, the way they lit his eyes, I just stole those shots <laughs> in, in my version. And, you know, I did the same thing with Sophia over and over again. 
Yeah. Um, and what about the, the 99 version, which is another one? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very different film, but I have a huge amount of affection for Me it. Me too. Absolutely. And we, we tip our hat to that as well yeah. in the film several times. I noticed the book. The book, yeah. <laughs> yes, you did. You did notice the book. And obviously, The Face in the Sand yeah. was, a, was a real memorable you know, moment from the original. Mm, absolutely. Or the, the remake of the original. <laughs> the middle version. The middle version. Exactly. <laughs> like the Middle Kingdom. Um, and, and then tell me about Tom Cruise, because, you know, he is, a, is he's not a guy who'll just come in and act. He has mm-hmm. very strong opinions. He yep. knows what his audience wants. He's pretty much always right about what his audience mm-hmm. wants, mm-hmm. you know, over mm-hmm. his career. What, what did he kind of bring when he came in? Well, I've worked with Tom now for 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we started on Mission Impossible 3 and we look for, we have very similar sensibilities in terms of what we look for in films and in filmmaking. And we both really share the belief that you've got to bring 100% of yourself. It is an all in deep dive when you make a film. And it is really all in service of doing one thing and one thing only, which is to deliver to the audience an experience that's different you know, and original and fresh. And for a guy who's made as many films as Tom has made to have that be his goal every time he makes a movie is quite something. And, you know, um, I have written and produced movies and television, certainly nowhere near at the scope and scale of Tom's work. Um, but this is only my second film as a director. And the first movie I did was much, much smaller. So, to be able to inherit the benefit of all of his knowledge. And, you know, Tom makes this amazing handshake agreement with you and you become partners. You know, you're, you're going to look at every aspect of the filmmaking together. And I learned so much from, you know, the directors that he's worked with mm-hmm. just by <laughs> being able to talk to him about his experience making films and being able to ask him, you know, and honestly, there were times where, cause I'm such a lifelong Tom Cruise fan, we would be doing takes and I'd be like, uh, I need Jerry Maguire here just give me Jeremy Maguire this time and he got it and he'd go do it you know or I'd say Charlie Babbitt and he would go right into Rain Man you know and and it's about knowing his work so specifically that I, I needed a specific flavor or a tone that I knew could be captured by that kind of character. And he would immediately understand how to translate what I was looking for into whatever the line was. Into this character yeah. in this moment. Yeah. I, I mean, Jerry Maguire was one of the things that came to my mind mm-hmm. when I, when I saw him, because we yeah. haven't often seen this kind of character from Tom Cruise before. Well, ironically, you know, you've seen it more than you think, you know, his character in Rain Man is a very morally challenged guy who's incredibly selfish and only, you know, only out for himself and comes to discover, you know, his humanity. Um, Vincent in Collateral, Jerry Maguire, you know, he's, he, Tom, I think has a unique career in that he, he has a history of playing characters who are morally challenged. And those are my, honestly, my favorite parts that he plays because it's very satisfying to watch a character go from as complicated and messed up as he is in those parts to understanding more about themselves. There's, there's more of an arc and an experience you as an audience member have when you watch someone go through that, as opposed to he's just a great guy at the beginning of the film and he ends a great guy, you know? Um, and you know, those movies can work really well too for other reasons, but, at the level of pure character, I find the morally challenged guys much more satisfying. Yeah. Well, he certainly goes on a journey in this one. I mean, this is a spoiler podcast. Let me ask about the ending. Sure. Was that there from the beginning? Was that something that you, you know, sort of pitched to him almost? Whenever you make a film, you want to try and be able to distill the character arc down to a simple idea Mm -hmm. and pitch it in purely emotional terms. And when Tom came on board, we, began to rewrite the script pretty heavily. And what emerged in our conversations was this idea. This is the story of a monster of a human being who has to become a literal monster to find his humanity. And that was always there from the beginning. Right. And once that became our compass, the story organized itself around that idea. Interesting. And 
so one of my colleagues had this theory that he was going to turn out to be like a descendant of Van Helsing or mm. something, and that would be the sort of the linking mm-hmm. material between these movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still seems like he could be the one of the links between these movies, mm-hmm. but but obviously not in that way. Anything is possible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll spoil one movie, but not the, not the ones to come. <laughs> Um, uh, let me then talk about Russell Crowe as well, because I'm yeah. guessing that's, um, again, if you were doing the low budget version of this, you would not have Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe no. in this movie. Um, <laughs> no. So that's got to have been a pleasure. Such a pleasure. I mean, uh, you know, a lifelong fan of Russell Crowe's, a lifelong fan of Tom Cruise's. I, my, one of my first jobs, my first job out of college, I was a PA on Heat, Michael Mann's Heat. And um, I remember the feeling, you know, we, we shot scenes with Pacino and we shot scenes with De Niro, but there was really, there were two scenes where they were together in the whole film, uh, three actually. And, um, every time they were together, there was this buzz of anticipation on the crew because they wanted to see what was going to happen. And it was so odd, however many years later to be directing a movie with two equivalent stars and feel the same buzz of excitement Mm -hmm. and to be able to, you know, not only to not only direct them, but to get along so well with them. And they're, they're both so attuned to character. And we spent time rehearsing and talking about the scenes in advance and what we wanted to get out of them. And they, they, you know, all your rehearsal time with actors tends to be a time in which you are building real deep bonds of trust, because once that trust is there, then you get on set and you start throwing stuff out there and you want to create a space for the actors to feel as safe and free as possible to be vulnerable and to deliver the performance they need to deliver. And then sometimes your job as a director is literally just to stand back and do nothing because you've got actors like Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe, you know, and I enjoyed so much the process of working with them. The fight was a lot of fun to shoot because they're both very experienced in fight choreography and they both knew that the only way to do a fight like that was to actually really go for it. So when they're throwing punches, they're throwing punches at each other, but they're so experienced that they know they can miss the nose by half an inch, you know, and um, it was just an absolute delight, you know, a real delight. And I think a director's dream to work with guys like that. And and how did you decide on, on Jekyll? There was a lot of debate about whether or not to put Henry in the movie, um, because what I don't tend to respond to as an audience member is, is, you know, seeing a movie where 50 characters are thrown into the pot right at the beginning, and I haven't really established relationships to them. And I, in the spirit of wanting to make this a satisfying mummy movie, it wasn't intuitive that Henry Jekyll would be in the film. Um, but this is a movie about a guy who in Tom's character, Nick, you know, has good and evil inside of him, um, has to decide which side of the line he's going to be. A monster could emerge from him at any moment. He's trying to control it. Well, I can now be describing Henry Jekyll to you, you know, and once it became clear that when Nick entered this larger world, he needed a guide through it. And Jekyll has been where Nick is going and he acts as a mirror to, to Tom. And so I think that we we felt after much debate that we had a, a justifiable story reason to put him in the film. Um, and, and it wasn't just about, hey, let's put these two characters together because it'd be cool. But in fact, we needed one to tell the story. It also gives you, I mean, and again, this may be getting too far ahead, but it gives you a, a big name to carry forward through mm-hmm, sure. this dark universe. I yeah, guess. you know, Henry will be, you know, obviously he's the head of Prodigium and, and a massive organizing principle around what Prodigium is and what they're doing and, and um, you know, uh, obviously having Russell be that guy is very exciting. And how much did you develop Prodigium themselves? Because, I mean, we saw 
we, we get tantalizing hints more mm-hmm. than anything else. They're sort of, at first I was like, they're paramilitary archaeologists. Mm-hmm. This is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but there, there is an element obviously of study and of an- mm-hmm. analysis there yes. as well. Paramilitary archaeologist is a great way of, of putting it, but, you know, that also includes uh, deep, uh, there are scientists. I mean, you know, what, I love David Cronenberg films. And one of the things I think is so interesting about Cronenberg is how he will take science and apply it to, you know, horror or mystical things. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you could say the same about Jurassic, you know. Um, and I like the idea that in, in thinking about doing a modern monster movie, you know, how would modern science deal with a monster? You know, um, how would how would they analyze it? And actually, in drafts of the script, um, and in some ways, I almost regret not putting it in the movie. There was a lot more time spent on the scientific analysis of what was going on in Aminette's body when she was chained up there. Oh, interesting! And they were analyzing like she's got seven different types of DNA. Why? Because she fed on seven people. You know, she's got a bunch of different blood in her system. Why? Because she fed on seven different people. You know, she's not she. She doesn't, she seems to have a heartbeat, but she's not exhaling oxygen. Why? You know, so there was a lot of really cool stuff in there that ultimately didn't make the cut because it kind of took you away from a story. But that's the kind of stuff that I could get lost in. I just love that stuff. And you can always like pick bits of that up again in totally. you know, in the future. Um, I wanted to ask about some of the, the, the stuff that we see as we're, as we're going into the prodigium, we're, we're passing through the sort of, um, uh, all those formaldehyde jars mm-hmm. basically. And, and there was definitely one with extremely long teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what else should people be looking out for in that scene? There's something right before it. Um, there was, and I, I remember spotting it when I was in the cinema, and then I came to write it down. I couldn't remember what it was. Yes, it's the it's it's a, a hand that looks um, yes. suspiciously like the hand from the creature from the Black Lagoon. That was it. I saw I spotted the web, webbing, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's yeah. interesting. Did you notice? Oh, you did notice the other Easter egg from the from the uh, Fraser mummy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the book as well. Um, yeah. Um, but no, I thought I thought that was uh, that was really cool. I was I, the only thing that I couldn't quite get first, and I actually watched the making of or one of the featurettes last night. Mm-hmm. Was I couldn't remember if the I was so busy looking at the teeth, I didn't notice if it was a wolfy looking skull or a humany looking skull. So I had to go back and check that. Well, that's a great question, actually. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. Either, right? It could have theoretically been either. It was intended to be a vampire skull. Right. Okay. Um, so I've, I'm pretty much through most of what I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask about just Aminette herself, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, the she's got the sort of the tattoos or the brands mm-hmm. all over her. Did you have a sort of a, a theory of what all those said? Yes. So um, first and foremost, I wanted to pay tribute to the look of the original mummy, mm-hmm. and even though. Uh, Karloff was only in the bandages for less than two minutes of screen time at the beginning of the film. You, that is what you remember about yeah. the mummy. And so I thought I did not want to put the mummy in a dress or something. You know, it didn't feel appropriate. I, the bandages are what make the mummy, the mummy. Yeah. So, um, so that was first and foremost. Then the idea of her skin regenerating is something that obviously comes from other mummy movies. Um, the runes themselves came from, I, I studied different cultures and different, everything from tribal markings to, you know, tattooing. Um, and, and actually the ancient Egyptians did quite a bit of both. Mm. Um, and the idea was that when she makes a pact with Set, who's the Egyptian god of death, AKA the devil, he kind of brands her and marks her. So those runes were designed by Lizzie and Bella Giorgio, who were our costume, our makeup designers who were brilliant. And it's not actually a language, but the intention was it's like a, it's a demonic language. Right. So it's a dedication to him. It's a dedication to him. Yeah. Um, And the the other thing that people have been asking about, I guess, which is a nice way to finish. We've, we've, we had this amazing female monster here. Um, 
And you've announced Bride of Frankenstein is mm-hmm. the next one, which a lot of people have been going, well, why not Frankenstein first? Mm-hmm. So why not Frankenstein first? Why Bride? Um, well, there's a lot of assumptions in that question. How do you know Frankenstein won't be in the movie? Oh, no, I mean... <laughs> I should say uh, Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, well, how do you know Frankenstein's monster won't be in the movie? Oh, no, I mean, presumably yeah, it did. It's obviously from M, Bride yeah. of Frankenstein. Um, I, I love the Bride of Frankenstein and weirdly like the, the original mummy, mm-hmm. Bride of Frankenstein is one of the weirder movies ever made. You yeah. know, it's a very strange film. And at the end of the film, Bride shows up and she's on screen for less than 10 minutes and she doesn't say anything. And she rejects Frankenstein utterly. And he's so upset, he pulls a lever and she blows up. And that's the whole <laughs> yeah. movie. And yet people still remember her. But so the hair. The hair, exactly. <laughs> it's iconic. And, and I think there's something so mysterious about her and the idea that she is a woman designed for a man who rejects the man. Mm. That is an amazing idea, especially for uh, an idea for the time. And um, there's a lot, there's a lot you can extrapolate from that, and there's a lot to be built into it. Um, so, like the Mummy, there will be homages, and and you know, uh, I think we want to uh, give our, our reverence to that film because it's a wonderful, wonderful film, um, and build on the ideas that it that it sort of silently gave us back in the day. Awesome. Well, we look forward to it. Well, Alex Kurtzman, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you. Okay, so that was uh, Alex Kurtzman talking to Helen O'Hara. Uh, fascinating interview. I loved every second of that. It was really, really great. Uh, and now here to talk about the prodigiums and the condigiums of the mummy. It's me, James, and Dan. First of all, as a bit of a scene setter, we do have some questions from Twitter. Some of them, I have to say, are of the why variety. Uh, but where do we stand in this film? Dan, you gave this film three stars, which I mean, always <laughs> is a recommendation on yeah. the uh, on the podcast. Uh, why? Explain myself. It's all in the review. It's there. No, I mean, look, it's... Don't read, you know that. It's funny when you... It's funny, you know, when you see you, you see these films and then you see the reaction afterwards. He's backpedaling you know, you, already. Look no, at I'm him. backpedaling. <laughs> look I'm at him. backpedaling. <laughs> it's, it's cultural commentary. It's not backpedaling. It's, 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 forward, it's forward-looking into culture. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of you, you see this and I saw it and I saw it with you know completely free of prejudice went, and I went well that was fun wasn't it uh-huh. bit hokey bit silly and This uh-huh. is I do say this in my review some of it's daft some of it doesn't make sense some of it's a bit annoying not keen on the CG animals I didn't say that in my review but that is true oh you um, CG animalist but I thought if I you know if I went out on a Friday or Saturday night mm-hmm. I would come home and I'd go oh that was quite fun um, and then you just see you know Bad review, bad review, people lay into it. Every, and everyone hates it. All of a sudden, everyone hates it. I, I mean, look, here's, hang on, hang on. Here's, here's an example, right? Don't, don't you shush me on my, on no, my no, podcast. No, no, no. Don't shush, you shush me on my shush, podcast. Shush, shush. Are, you, are you about to Hush, hush my critic. darling. Hush my darling. So, Gail Simone, right? Gail <laughs> Simone, Wonder Woman writer on Twitter. Yep. This is great. Uh-huh. So the mummy is like gluing a bunch of smoke alarms to your head <laughs> while your ugly cousin... <laughs> while your ugly cousin whacks them with a wooden axe handle, okay? This isn't her only tweet on it. The Mummy is that one <coughs> night gallery where a naked Sean Hannity finally comes out the other ear, but oh no, he laid wet eggs in your brain. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't get that one. Um, right. Okay. But the, thank you for reading that out. Uh, the, the, the Mummy is like your best childhood Saturday morning, except the cartoon is Scrappy-Doo and the cereal is Steve Bannon Toast Crunch. Oh no! Are you, are you reading these out because you are uh, regretting not putting those into your <laughs> review? Yes. No, I'm reading these out because, I mean, I, they're, they're, they're very funny and I yeah. recommend them, but I, I'm just like, I don't get what is so egregious well, and so offensive about I this I will film. say, off the bat, I don't hate this movie. 
I feel that this movie has been designated as the piñata of the summer by this strange, shadowy cabal of critics, especially on the other side of the water, who are giving it... What's his Rotten Tomatoes score at the... Metacritic is 34. 34. Mm. And what's his Rotten Tomatoes, do you know? Uh, no, I'd have to, I'd have to Google it. We'd have to no. Google that. But it's low, right? It's mm. low. Um, in fact, I can get that in the blink of an eye, thanks to the magic of Wi-Fi. Uh, 17%. 17%. 17%. That's less than one star. That's less than an average of one star if you, you know, work it out on the Rotten Tomatoes scale. It is not that. It is not Batman and Robin. It is not horrendously awful. In fact, I thought the first 25 minutes showed real promise. Uh, There were some interesting little wrinkles and quirks and and twists maybe that I didn't see coming and I quite liked the fact that the cruiser was playing a character that wasn't atypically cruisy. Although... You know, I think he's making more of more of a point if playing against type, but he's not playing Ethan Hunt. He's playing, you know, he's an America made or Edge of Tomorrow where he's a coward. And I thought this guy was, was new and different as well. Um, and then it just turned into a bit of a muddled, murky, shapeless mess uh, in the second half for me. The largely uh, coincides with the, the introduction of, uh, of Edward Hyde and his, uh, oh, his, his alter ego... Dr. Henry Jekyll. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that in a second. But I yeah, I, I don't think it's a three-star film. Hmm. But neither do I think it's a one-star monstrosity, which is certainly yeah. what a lot of critics seem to think. But, hey-ho, that's just my opinion. Jimbo. Um, yeah, I wasn't a fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd be sitting in a cinema channeling my willpower and begging Arnold Vosloo to appear, but I was. Um, I'm not a huge fan of those mummy films, Mummy, Mummy Returns, Dragon Emperor, all that uh, jazz. Or about Scorpion King. uh, Or indeed, actually, do you know what? I don't mind Scorpion King, but it is terrible. Um, (laughs) What? It's it's a long story. I saw it and I enjoyed it when I saw it. Don't worry about it. Mainly because I met The Rock right afterwards. It's a whole thing. Anyway, um, I'm not a big fan of those, but they are significantly better, I thought, than this, which was... My my issues with this are there are a lot of films out there that are very cynical, and God knows DC have made a lot of them, but this was the most cynical film because it felt a little bit like there was a boardroom at Universal Towers where they said, you know what, we don't have a superhero franchise. And someone said, well, we've got Fast and Furious. And someone said, shut up. And so they said, we need a superhero (laughs) franchise. What can we do? They said, well, we've got a horror franchise. What if we took this horror franchise and squeezed it through the superhero origin filter? What could we come up with? And you have this, which is a super horror hero origin story. Um, and it's what happens if DC made a horror movie, and um, it's 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 an exercise in box tickery. And Dan, you're raising your hand as if you wish to interject and contradict me. Go for it. I I think I think there's a lot in what you're saying, but yeah. I quite like that. I quite like the idea of a kind of the the monsters of the classic monsters sort of almost being treated like superhero characters in a way that will have their own films and come together and do stuff. I mean, it's not without precedent. They do tend to overlap in the you know in the classic films. But a shared, you know, universe, with Abbott and Costello, <laughs> a shared universe isn't actually what I object to. Like sharing, the, that, you know what? That's fine. That's not a problem. It's that it is so transparently. A superhero origin film, in particular, I mean, specifically the ending, where, the, where you even have the, the music, the tone, the voiceover, the little epilogue, all of it feels like the setup to he's now out there, they will call on him when he is needed, and it's just <laughs> like he will never be needed, just fuck off. I am kind of disappointed that uh, towards the end there, there wasn't a scene where he turned to Sophia Boutella and said, I'm the mummy now. <laughs> Who's your mummy? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think... 
Had they cast anyone except Tom Cruise in that role, ye, the film would not work. I think he carries it on pure charisma a lot of the times when you would otherwise lose it. I really enjoyed his performance. Mm-hmm. I thought he was a lot of fun. It's a problematic character and he does breathe life into it. I thought Annabelle Wallace, who's actually very good and things like Peaky Blinders, had nothing to do. All she seems to do is say, Nick! Nick, 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 in a variety of pitches. You said to me if it was a dialogue. drinking game where you had to take a shot every time she said the word Nick. Yeah, you'd be dead <laughs> halfway through the film. Um, you would need Tom Cruise to revive you. It's a very symbolic name, though. Think about it. His first name's Nick. What he does is he steals loot from tombs. He nicks it, right? His surname's Morton, okay? Uh-huh. Right? Early on in the film, he dies and comes back from the dead. Mort is Latin for dead, all right? Hey, and he's on it. I would say you maybe give them more credit than than they're due, but that actually does make a kind of sense. Think all right then, Nick Morton. He steals the dead. How about that? He steals from the dead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a clever name. That is, it's a very clever name. Annabelle Wallace doesn't get a lot to do in this. You're absolutely right, Um, especially when you compare it to uh, previous mummies Mm. past, Uh, but. I quite liked some of the little notes she was trying to go for to avoid becoming a scream queen. Uh, I will say, sometimes for spoiler specials, we see the films two or three times before we get into the roof and we talk about it. So we're, we're, we're immersed in every detail and we can recall lines and things that happen. I think we've all just seen the film once. And I so. remember almost nothing. <laughs> I took, so we're, we're I took copious a little bit here. notes. Oh, good, Dan. You're copious. Very, very good. Uh, but there's a bit in the church, I think, where she she walks in and he's about to be killed, I guess, mm-hmm. by by the mummy. And and she goes, ooh. She does a little kind of, ooh, wibble, ooh, wibble. <laughs> and uh, she does that again later on. There's a little bit of like, ooh, kind of, which I thought was a little interesting note. You know, she's she's funny, Annabelle Wallace. She's, mm. uh, she's funny in, the, in Grimsby. Yes! Grimsby's funny. Uh, I'm saying that here, but um, so I thought that was that was interesting. And, and Cruz, I think you're absolutely right. And Cruz, talk about the film being a, a pinata. Cruz is the human pinata for this film. It just feels like this like, time to get him. Time to get him. We must take down Tom Cruise. The number of uh, articles and features I've seen about Cruz and is he a fading star? Is he a man who only has one franchise and then the rest are just pot shots to try and keep his star alive. And there's a certain credence to that, I would say. De- definitely, he does not want to go, you know, quietly into the night. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to to no longer be the, the you know, the most famous actor in the, on the wor- in the world. But, uh, yeah, but I, I think this is, an, this is a, an interesting choice. If you look at it from his point of view, he gets to headline potentially a new franchise, potentially a new shared universe... And he he attacks it with the usual Cruzian brio, I think. Hmm. Nothing wrong with him in this film, I would say. He is the Robert Downey Jr. of the Dark Universe. He is. He might be 10 years too old for it, but the thing is, Tom Cruise is 52, 53, and he don't look it. I mean, if I look like Uber, I'm 52 or 53, I'll be doing very, very well indeed. You know, the man's still got it. He looks looks 40s. Hmm. I'll grant him that. You know, he's no longer the ageless Tom Cruise, but it's not like he's... Roger Moore and a few to a kill, creaking up the Eiffel Tower. He's not like that, is he? No, no, he's not. No, and I, and I enjoyed him in this film. To be honest, I mean, go on, James. I want you to explain something to me, Dan. As, as our resident mummy expert, okay. when a man beats a lead, <laughs> <laughs> we've covered this on the previous podcast. I understand how reproduction works. Um, what I want to ask you is this: I'm Annette. 
is having a bad day because her daddy, the pharaoh, has a son. Yes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she makes a deal with Set, the god of death. Mm-hmm. For what, exactly? <laughs> Some tattoos and piercings, apparently. Because she doesn't get anything special, because all she does is go and slit their throats with a knife that she already had. So, what exactly does he give her to help her get vengeance he, and her throne when he, she does it all herself? He gives her the knife. Oh, so he lent her a knife? Yeah. Okay, fine. He appears... So she couldn't have procured a knife elsewhere. He appeared, well, this is a special knife, isn't it? It's yeah, a special knife. A special the, knife. She just slits people's throats. She had solved her own problem before he even got involved. It's a special knife with a jewel of MacGuffin. <laughs> presumably he gives her the power to, to have other people turn a blind eye so she can flit in and out of rooms. just made that up. And also when she, she... lives in the palace. She's his daughter. She can go where she likes. But she could have killed them all in their sleep anyway and done away with all of this immortal nonsense. Clearly he gives her some power. He gives her tattoos. He doesn't give her tattoos. He, he gives her he gives her power enough, although we don't necessarily see it. She has no power. To make sure that Autoglass Repair, Autoglass Replace, uh, have a field day later on in London. Because she blows up all the windows, doesn't she? She does. And I couldn't work out whether is that supposed to be because glass is actually made of sand? Is that was that like a clever that's, chemistry reference. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't work out whether it was just dramatic or they were like, oh yeah, that's true. That is where it comes from. Yeah. Um But you you still haven't answered my question. She did a deal with the devil. Right? Yes. She wanted power. And okay? she she'd none. been denied power. Mm-hmm. So she thought, all right, I'm going to go on better than that. I'm going to rule the world. But, but she, she would have been fairess without the powers. It's possible I'm laboring this point. We should just move on. It doesn't make any sense. Let's just ignore well, it. Well, actually, that whole, I will say this. I will say this as you know, the guy who gave it three stars. Um, <laughs> That's going to be on your tombstone. <laughs> no, no, I've, got, I've, given, we'll wor- I've, given, I've given worse films higher star ratings. I think we've all, um, we've all had worse. We've all done worse. <laughs> Dude, Chris, but, tell us. Tell no, us how. No, let's not go there, honestly. I'm so <laughs> bored of hearing about his five-star review of Attack of the Clones. Um, I'm not. Okay. Um, now, if I'm, oh yeah, th- that whole thing though. I thought that whole prologue they should have cut it. They shouldn't have done it at all. I thought the film would have been easily ten percent better had they not had 10%. that easily ten percent easily maybe twelve. Twelve okay. and a half. Twelve and a half. Percentage wise, that would still be three stars. Uh, it, anyway, whatever. It would have been a solid three stars. It would okay. have, but it really kind of like you. They could have told that story through the revelations that that you know Nick and Jenny and the, the things that they find out. Mm-hmm. They would have told the stories they went along and had a sense of mystery at the start about what they were finding in this mysterious Egyptian tomb in Iraq. Well, I have the feeling. I uh, don't know this for sure, of course, but I have a feeling that was uh, either a late edition. Or studio mandated, uh, as indeed I think the dreadful dialogue at the end of the movie that that <laughs> awful voiceover. He is he is a man, but also a monster, and all that nonsense. I was monster. waiting for them to shine the mummy symbol in the sky at that point. <laughs> but the the beginning, you know, when they bring Doctor Jekyll into it, and you're. And then they bring him into the again halfway through, and you're thinking, well, that's meant to be his introduction. Clearly, when he when they arrive at Prodigium and he turns yeah. up, and that's meant to that's meant to be the first time we see him, isn't it? And then someone probably watched it, some focus, some test screening, and they went, we don't understand what's happening. <laughs> we honestly, what the hell is happening? And so they had to probably just a complete guess, no idea. But I'm guessing that they then went back and they re-added, maybe they moved the bit with Sofia Batella going around killing babies and stuff. It's always a good way to start your film, isn't it? And then, uh, you know, and they maybe moved that forward. And then they maybe they brought Russell Crowe in for a reshoot. They meant stand here, stand here, look mysterious. And then hand that bloke a piece of paper. And then don't do anything for the rest of the movie. Mentioning Russell Crowe, can we speak about the prodigium experience for a minute? Um, first of all, they lock her up. 
Thank you, Dan. Very good. Uh, <laughs> 90s rave reference. I like it. <laughs> I thought you were. James, it's almost like um, you were human once. Almost. Yeah. Um, so they lock her up and they stick her in a room with the elite special forces of Prodigium, to wit, four IT bods all <laughs> facing in the opposite direction. Okay. And Don't then you speak got... ill of Pete. Do not speak <laughs> ill of Pete. That man gave his life. And then you've got something. the guy in charge who turns into a psychotic cockney monster uh, when he doesn't get his medication, which he apparently keeps across the other side of the room and just strolls <laughs> lackadaisically over to it while having a conversation, pausing to fill in some exposition yeah. while casually loading it up. Where's his EpiPen strapped to his leg? I mean... Admittedly, you do have to call into question the HR practices <laughs> of Prodigium. Is this the best they could do to be their leader? A man who's like, you know, who's going to like be like Jack Douglas and carry on every five minutes? Way <laughs> off he goes. Oh, he's having another episode. Well, I guess we better lock him in his office then with all those smashable, fragile yeah. objects. It's your old mate, Eddie I. <laughs> I mean, I'm better now. You better let me up, mate. I mean, yeah, it's, it's totally unrealistic to have people who are unsuitable in positions of power, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, when does that ever happen in the real world? I can't think of Hashtag any examples. social commentary. Yeah, but, but Dan, too many bad choices in movies these days are uh, could be could be explained away as oh, it's a Trump reference. Actually, I was talking about Theresa May. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, um, but, but the, I, th- I but think you're right. I mean, it's ridiculous. He has this condition and. Why does he have like a nurse with him to administer the? the well, they, they got the special the lockdown. Remedy. They got the lockdown facility thing. Incredibly slow-moving lockdown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which enables her to get out and then come back in again in the time yeah. it takes. I mean, what does it say about class as well? I, mean, I know that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were always been uh, conceived as a sort of uh, take on class yeah. within society. But what does it say about them that they're so scared of a Cockney that they have to lock him in? <laughs> I mean, well, co- I've co- worked with Cockneys. They're, they're perfect. They're the people like you and us. i tell you something. A Cockney loves a lock-in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has gone off the rails early. I mean, Prodigium, James, you were saying, what, what is it about Prodigium, this, 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 the, the shield of this franchise? It, oh, they want to be shielded, this franchise. Yeah, they're, they're not the most uh, confidence-inspiring uh, organisation, are they? They've, they've got a gill man hand in a jar. Well, yes, they do have that. Mm. And, uh, a, and a Draclia skull. The, the problem is, is that obviously uh, Hyde is going to resurface quite uh, visibly in the future if, uh, if the Dark Universe is to proceed. And if anything, this film kind of makes you want to never, ever see that because he is one of the worst things in this film, <gasps> which is slightly problematic. I thought Johnny Depp was excellent in this film as the Invisible Man. You may have oh, missed him. Oh, come on, um, man. <laughs> come on, that's my joke. Sorry. You Sorry, unbelievable Chris. prick. I should have realised the really obvious first base gag. Oh, God, no, I tweeted it after the screening. because, oh. Like I read your tweets. Well, um, you know, it's problematic. Lost. But let's, I mean, let's talk about the Dark Universe for a minute. So they have their new Dark Universe logo at the beginning, an act of <laughs> hubris slash confidence, depending on your point of view. Yeah. Uh, and this is the first of a franchise. And the next one is Brian Frankenstein? Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Bride of, Brian, Brian Bride of, of Frankenstein. Frankenstein yeah. Which is an unusual direction. Yeah. Bride of Frankenstein starring, we presume, we don't know who the bride is yet, but I think they're talking about Angelina Jolie. Um, I imagine she will not... Maybe they'll cast a man as the bride. Maybe, maybe, maybe they will, Dan. Maybe they yeah. will. And uh, Javier Bardem, who is a man, as we all know, who does not phone it in for blockbusters, uh, mm-hmm. is going to be Frankenstein's monster. So I'm, I'm excited about that, and I'm sure you guys are too. Uh, but Bill Condon is the director, and that is something at least, and he is a man who is 
you know, he knows his way around the Universal Monsters. He knows his way around uh, Frankenstein, or Bride of Frankenstein, of course. Mm. He directed Gods and Monsters. Um, so, Which is referred to at the beginning of, uh, of this film. It, it is indeed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> a new world of... A new world of gods and monsters. Whoa, Eddie Hyde! That's quite good. That's quite good. That's, oh, quite good. that's, oh, that's, that's one of your better impressions. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. That was Tom Cruise. <laughs> Was it good? It was. It was. You know. me then? Yeah. Yeah. If you give me approval. Um, should we take some questions? Let let let's do let the madness consume us all. Let's take some questions because if we talk about this this movie, can I just say one thing before we take take some questions? No. Uh, this movie has one of the great supporting characters in cinema history, and that is Alan. And Alan is one of the paramedics who attends the crash site uh, and then gets mummified by Sofia Batella, and he is given a character name. Within the movie, but not in the credits, and he is played by he is played by Stephen Thompson or James Arama. I've no idea which is which, but I think Alan speaks to us all. He is a, an innocent bystander who is sucked into a maelstrom that he has no idea what is happening. It's a bit it's a bit political again, isn't it, Dan? Mm. And then mm. he gets mummified and then turns into an evil vessel. In many ways, we are all Alan. We are all Alan. And I, I, I think I cried a little bit when Alan got killed for the second time, definitively this time. I should do a Dark Universe one-shot about him. <laughs> they should. I would genuinely love to see that. <laughs> we teams up with Pete, the IT guy who gets yes. possessed and uh, and frees Amanet. It's like a dark universe bringing out the dead. It would be like you know, you know the way Coulson was one of the early bridging devices for the MCU, and then obviously he got his own TV show. You mean Alan, Agent Casper? Who? Agent Casper from the West Wing. Yes, I mean Agent Casper yeah. from the West Wing. Yes, uh, Alan could be that for the dark universe. Mm. But anyway. I digress. Questions. Uh, this has come. This one comes from Mrs. Pancakes. Not her real name, I guess. Uh, assuming they're still going through the Dark Universe uh, box office. II. Yes, this is the thing because the movie hasn't done that well in the states. Did pretty well internationally. Um, who would you cast as the Wolfman if they include him in future movies? Oh, that's a good question. Benicio del Toro. No. Um. <laughs> Well, that's bring the thing, because they've... they've bring him back. They've tried to set up this dark universe. I'm sure they weren't calling it back then. They've tried mm. to set it up twice in the last few years, because obviously Universal holds the IP. Uh, well, it doesn't hold the IP, but it has a long history going back with the Universal monsters. You know, Dracula, Draclia. 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 Frankenstein, Creature Frank, from the Black Lagoon. Frank, uh, Franklinstein. Franklinstein, the Invisible Man. Uh, all, those, all those groovy creatures. Um, and... It's sitting on what it thinks is a financial, it's a gold mine. Um, and it's tried over the last few years to to revive them with Benicio de Toro and the Wolfman. That didn't really work. Uh, Luke Evans and Dracula are Untold. That really didn't work. And now this. So I don't know. But will, will the Wolfman come back? The Rock's been linked, I believe. Luke Evans does punch an army with a fist made of bats. And you don't see that every day. Hmm. Just saying. Chris Pratt. He's not, he's not doing anything else. He has no other He's franchises. No other franchises. Let's give him a new franchise. Let's give Chris him a Pratt franchise. Should play everyone in everything. Mm. I don't think he would be a good Wolfman. No, I don't think. Uh, I don't think he'd be a good Larry Talbot. No, mm. I, don't I don't think it matters who plays the Wolfman as long as both um, Jason Bateman and Michael J. Fox cameo. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack Nicholson. Yes, Wolf. I like Wolf. That's a good film. I genuinely That's like it. That's a good it. film. It's, it's, it's you know it's a, it's about the male condition, about testosterone yeah. and and, mm. and and you know workplace insecurity and homophobia. When Ompuri asks him to bite him because uh, he can't transform him with his passion. That's right. Mm. Good film. 
Trampology asks, it's a bold move editing up a Dark Universe title clip. Yes, it is. Um, while I had fun watching it, I'm not particularly invested in a full-on cinematic universe. Do you think the film's pretty overwhelmingly negative reception will have an effect on those future plans? So we know we're getting Bride of Frankenstein unless this movie falls off a cliff and they, they pull a the plug. Because just you know they can still do that. I mean, they've had group shots. They've probably probably got stationery made. It's a whole thing now. Yeah. Um, so they kind of. I think they'll do Bride of Frankenstein one, and if that dies on its ass, then all of the other stuff will get quietly shelved. Uh, I don't tend to look very closely at numbers and follow box office a hell of a lot. But didn't this do really well in China? Yeah, it did pretty well around the world in this opening weekend. Right. Uh, Cruise's biggest ever worldwide opening, apparently. Uh, but it did not very well at all in the states. Now, of course, that's no longer the be all and end all with box office. Mm-hmm. Um, the most recent Transformers movie, not the one that's about to come out, but Age of Extinction. The only reason I got over the billion dollar line, of course, was because it was huge in China. Uh, and so if this, buoyed by the, because it's not going to get anywhere close to 100 million in the States. Uh, so if it makes three to 400 million dollars worldwide, uh, the rest of the, the, you know, the global market, then I think they'll probably take this one as a tentative win and maybe push ahead mm. with their plans. But... Uh, They've been pretty aggressive with the announcements over the last few weeks, even though the word in this was not great. You could see the trailers weren't great. There was a sense that maybe this one wasn't going to be a winner. Um, And the tracking wasn't that good either at the box office. But they were still pretty aggressive. They were aggressive with announcing Bride of Frankenstein, as James says, that picture of Johnny Depp and Cruz and Javier Bardem and Sofia Batella and uh, Russell Crowe, uh, none of whom were in the same room, apparently. Uh, you know, they, and they were aggressive with potential announcements for the likes of Creature from the Black Lagoon and uh, The Invisible Man and all sorts. So, I don't know, I wonder if they might dial it back a little bit. The same way that, for example, the reinvigorated Ghostbusters franchise never really caught fire. I don't know whether that's still going over there at Sony, the Ghost Core that, uh, that Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd were working on. And had multiple Ghostbusters movies in the in the pipeline. I was at Sony uh, quite recently, and the building's still there. <laughs> what the um, the building with the Ghostbusters sign outside? Yeah. yeah, maybe it's still going there. Yeah, maybe so they're the building, still the building's maybe, there, and it's it's got XO one outside the front and everything. So well, maybe they're still chipping away. Mm. That'd be good. Well done. Well done, them. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not burning up to see any more of these movies. I was intrigued at one point. We were talking about this in the podcast a few months ago about how Cruise might fit into future plans. We had there was this theory floating around that he might turn out to be Van Helsing, or he might be in some way the thing that links all the movies together. And I still think he will be that. I still think that there, you know, he'll probably show up in Bride of Frankenstein. He'll probably show up in some of the other ones as well. But I don't know. You know who I'd cast as Van Helsing? Who would you cast as Van Helsing, Dan? Hugh Jackman. He'd be brilliant. <laughs> Maybe change his name from Abraham, though, to something younger, like Gabriel. <laughs> Maybe have him turn into werewolf, do that. Mm. So, um, he can, so he can kill a Draclia. A Draclia, absolutely. Uh, Beetle Dave asks, did all of you play Tom Cruise bingo? Uh, run a lot? Bingo! Have a shouty bit? Bingo! Wear platforms to make him look taller? Bingo! Apparently you can see this in the first few minutes. Oh, come on. Uh, have the camera angle to make him look the same size as everyone else. Bingo. Uh, that, that's harsh. This is Tom Cruise. Question. Tom Cruise is the same size as me, and I'm not small. I'm average. Uh, has he got a scene where he can rub his forehead whilst looking worried? I had to wait until the very end, but bingo. Full house. No, I've never played. I didn't even know this game existed. 
Leave poor Tommy Cruise alone. Yeah. I think there's a scene where he kind of puts his, his sort of fingertips on either on his temples and sort of shakes his hands a bit and then pushes his hands out in front of his face. I, I, I'm not on board with all this Cruise hating. I like Tom Cruise. I think he's great. So is, there, there, is there more to that? No, <laughs> that's it. That is my statement. I'm sticking yeah. by it. I should say that uh, Tom Cruise is standing right behind James with a gun pointed to his head at it's the moment true. and uh, making you read it off a piece of paper. Is that is that right? Yeah. I also loved him in Interview with the Vampire. So Yeah. yeah. So at, at the end, I think he's the idea, isn't it? Because he's taken the, the god of death's power into him. Yeah, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, my understanding of the story was that the Chosen One would be the vessel mm. and Set would take them over. Uh, two problems there. A, that doesn't happen. He just gets all Set's powers, which seems a bit weird. And B, why was he the Chosen One? Because he just happened to be the nearest bloke when she got woken up. No, he freed her. He made the conscious choice to free her. She even says it in dialogue, James. That's Pay quite attention. shitty criteria, though, isn't it? Well, yeah. But it's a set of rules that were not really told, were not explained at any point. A lot of people have asked, is he dead or is he not dead? I mean, he's on a plane that crashes and he is unsecured at the point it crashes. There'd be bits of him everywhere. And, then well, he wakes and he's up, in a body bag. He wakes up in, in one piece in a body bag. Yeah. And the movie's never because quite... Because magic. Because magic. Mm. Uh, now, the movie's never quite clear whether he is unkillable at that point after that because the curse won't let him be killed. But here's another thing. I didn't get that bit. Why doesn't he just come back as a corpse like Jake Johnson does? Uh, his great turn as Tom Cruise's best mate, Griffin Dunn from In America Will Be From London. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. But he doesn't actually come back. Isn't he just a vision? Like Griffin Dunn from American Wealth in London? Well, obviously he doesn't physically come back, but he he's does. he's around. So why doesn't Tom Cruise do that? Why doesn't... Why isn't, yeah. And then again, he wouldn't be a physical vessel for Set to come through. Ah, clever, Dan. Well done. What did I do? You you uh, guided me to a moment of elucidation. Oh, excellent. So that was good. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. It doesn't make any sense. So at the end, he chooses to take his own life. So is he gambling that he will be able to... That by, by doing that, by choosing to take his own life... Uh, that he will somehow have control mm. over Set? I think so. There has been no evidence to suggest that will be the case. None. Yeah. It's like if I was playing a kind of uh, universal horror role-playing game, right, that's what I would have done. That would really, that would have really confused the dungeon master. <laughs> well, you, what, that you would take your own life? Yeah, I would go, oh, actually, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stab myself with the magic knife and yeah. I'm going to get the power. I'm going to become a new superhero. And the dungeon master would go, That's, I don't know what to do with that. I didn't prepare for this. Fine, whatever. You're the new superhero. Well, then, 2d12, Dan is dead. And then he comes back from the dead. He comes yeah. back. Uh, so he kills himself. Set takes over his body, which, don't forget, this is what Amanet wants to happen. But it's right. really just a setup for the sequel. Uh, there we go. Um, but then he's in charge of Set at this point. But Set keeps coming through. Mm. Uh, which is why he growls a bit and goes, oh, leave me alone, I'm all tortured and evil. And But he has enough good within him to be able to bring Annabelle Wallace back from the dead because yes. obviously he's so in love with Annabelle Wallace that um, that he can't live life without her, even though he then chooses to be without her. And and, and, and hang out with his mate. <laughs> hang out with his mate, his annoying mate. Um, thanks. What's the line that someone uh, wrote an article about that was so intense by this line at the end? Thanks for bringing me back from the dead, dude. Uh, which is what yeah. that character, I can't even remember his name, uh, says to Tom Cruise. Fail. 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 Uh, he must but, have a, yeah. He, yeah. Um, 
And yeah, it's just, it's a bad line. The, the whole end of the movie feels to me, once again, like the studio stepped in and went, people aren't getting it. People do not understand what is happening here. So you're going to have to have Dr. Jekyll or Eddie Hyde, it really doesn't matter, whatever accent Ross feels like doing on the day, just explain to the audience what is happening. He's a man and a monster. Oh, yeah. You know, it just feels a bit, a bit on the nose. Thanks for bringing me back from the dead, dude. Yep, just two dead guys having fun in the desert. <laughs> and yep. no and questions asked. And he doesn't have that creepy woman chasing after him anymore, you know, yeah. you know, trying to trying to get him. But here, here are the wrinkles. I, I talked about wrinkles and twists at the beginning, and I quite liked the first 20, 25 minutes or so. I was on board. I, I liked the fact that Cruz was was not the normal Cruz. He was mm-hmm. a bit immoral and, you know, a little bit woo, a little bit wee, a little bit way. Uh, I, liked, um, I liked the fact that he had... A past with Annabelle Wallace that was alluded to, and obviously they, you know, he had because he's a bit woo. He had dumped her and run off with the the secret letter. Uh, I quite liked that relationship. I liked the fact that they killed Jake Johnson really early because he was really fucking annoying, and I was so upset when he came back. Um, but I, you know, and a little twist like where Courtney B. Fans comes into it and then gets killed, and then he doesn't come back. Why does he come back? Anyway. Here's a question from questions. Sorry, from Natasha Barden uh, asks: Why was the film about an ancient Egyptian tradition set in London? Well, because because uh, because we used to own Egypt. It was ours. <laughs> it was all right, what? and we got all their no, we yeah, we got all their stuff. Yeah, we got all their stuff. We took loads of their stuff. We took it away. We bought it back. We put it in a big museum and called it the British Museum, which doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we said, oh, all right, have your country back, but we're not having your stuff back. Yeah. Uh, I think because most of the other mummies are set in London. I think that's, that's why. This one didn't feel like it had much of a link to previous mummies. People uh, it, have pointed it, it, out. Crossrail. Crossrail. It was linked by a crossrail. Oh, yes. The crossrail sequence at <laughs> the beginning. Uh, told by the RP BBC man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love know. it. Uh, people have pointed out that uh, I think a prodigium's lair. Obviously, we pointed out. It's not, I don't think it's an Easter egg if the camera zooms right in on it. But uh, obviously, we have the the, the Gilman's hand, and we have a Draclear face, which is probably just a vampire. But you know, it could be Draclear. You never know. Uh, but people have pointed out that apparently the Book of the Dead from the original. Not the, oh my God, the Stephen Summers mummy is in there as well. And so, is this part of the same universe? I would say no. I would say it's just a gag. But you never know. If that means that uh, John Hanna and Arnold Fosslew are going to turn up to save us from ourselves at any point, that would be great. Uh, another question from Natasha Pardon. Why did they confusingly call Tom Cruise's character Nick and then cast Nick from New Girl as a sidekick? <laughs> I don't know. Um, do people in the desert actually ride horses anymore? James, you've you've what? been in the desert. You've recently. been in the desert. I'm presumably quad bikes are less cinematic. Presumably they are. Uh, I rode I rode horses in the desert in the 1990s. Maybe this is a whole Dan origin story, isn't it? That we don't have time to get into. Dan rode horses in the desert in the 90s. Yeah. Around the pyramid, like a, around the pyramids and everything. It's great. Was it a caper? Did it involve Bedouins? Did you discover buried treasure and then unleash a terrible curse upon you? Well, there is a funny story about it, but I shouldn't tell it. That's probably... In fact, you know what? I know this story, and you definitely <laughs> shouldn't tell it. <laughs> Moving on. Please please tell it. Nope. <laughs> Natasha Barton is continuing with the questions. It was good until they introduced a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, at which point I was like, really? This isn't a question, but it was really annoying, and I felt I needed to tell someone this. Um, yeah... 
we haven't really talked about Jekyll and Hyde, really. So what do we make? You think he's one of the worst things in it, James? Yes, I do. As both Jekyll and Hyde? Yes. Okay, why, why do you think he's bad? Uh, I think he's bad because it's incredibly forced. Uh, it, it's just it's an unnecessary bridging device to try and tee us into other movies, and it pulled me out of the film. And also, the, we've already talked about the plot difficulties around him having the transformation, which, you know, if you have that kind of condition, you would hate precautions. Uh, mm. But they had to show that to sort of make it exciting. Oh, yes, I really want to see a film about this. But it, it just distracted from what was going on. And perhaps that was, in, was intentional, given that what was actually going on made no sense. But <laughs> um, I, No, I didn't. It, it, it pulled me out of the main story and I found it an, an unwanted distraction. Also, because he was Basil Exposition for so much of the film, that irked me as well. Mm. But um, mm. I quite like the fact that the guy, the Basil Exposition guy, turned out to be Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> I just like I just like you. What the hell? And also, think I, I think I said this. I said this in the in, in the weekly podcast. I, I actually kind of got a bit of a a bit of a buzz out of seeing Cruz and Crow kind of sharing a scene, and also in such a crazy film. You know, I just I just thought that was fun, and I thought Crow was clearly having fun. But this this is the thing that I I should have expected more. You know, than actual subtlety, but. Jekyll and Hyde is one of the properties that they own that actually you could do something good with. You know, it can be subtly done, it can be carefully done, where you're not sure whether he's Jekyll or Hyde. You know, that Hyde is, you know, a careful, intelligent sociopath, more of a Dexter-type thing, as opposed to a physical monster. Mm. I mean, this was just League of Extraordinary Gentlemen without the CGI. Well, you know I, don't what I, mean? they, I don't think they went far enough with, with Hyde. Uh, Hyde. Hyde, tone it down, don't ham it up. Hyde is Jekyll, but... Grey and a bit feigny, and obviously born within the sound of the bow bells, <laughs> for for reasons. Um, but League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, a dreadful, dreadful film. But let's give it its due. When it went for Mr. Hyde, it really went for Mr. Hyde with this sort of misshapen, mutated giant monster with a mm. huge arm. And it had Jason Fleming. And any film that has Jason Fleming is already onto a winner. And I, I've got to pull you up on something, James. It was not CGI, and I'm sure Jason <laughs> Fleming, Jason Fleming would would love to tell you how not CGI that Mr. Hyde was. Well, I apologise, but I would like to have seen it more sort of Aaron and Roy in in Primal Fear. You know that kind of personality switch rather than. You know, I don't think you need yeah. evil black veins to, well, to hammer the point home. Do you think that, you know, I th- most people, right, going to this movie will know who Dracula is, they'll know who Franklin Stein is, they'll know, they'll know of the mummy. Will they know who Jekyll and Hyde are? Will they get that? Will they get that this guy, this erudite guy, is suddenly turning into a rager and... Will that completely baffle people? They'll have seen the James Nesbitt TV show, so they'll be fine. Youths, Dan. Youths. But they don't know Jekyll and Hyde. I don't think they do, mate. That's why he talks like they do. I'm I'm very surprised. I mean, I'd say he's like core, you know... Core youth. Core core mythos. Yeah, okay. For for the for the the universal monsteriness. Really? I I mean, I mean, yes. Dracula, yes. Frankenstein, yes. But no, I would have thought Jekyll and Hyde's kind of peripheral, isn't he? Really? Yeah. Okay. But here's the thing: Jekyll and Hyde. That is a phrase that is in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Uh, people say that. Yeah, he had a Jekyll and Hyde personality. Maybe they don't really know what it's referring to. But and of course, everyone remembers Doctor Jekyll and Ms. Hyde. Yeah. But this film doesn't take the time to explain. Like he turns up going, "Hello, I'm Doctor Jekyll," and then ooh, he suddenly starts convulsing and injecting himself with stuff. And if you didn't know what Jekyll and Hyde was, you'd be going, "What? What the hell is going on here?" Also, he disappears from the film. Well, he's done like, his bit, isn't he? Yeah. But, I mean, 
don't you think he would be of some use to the fight against Amanet? Well, presumably he was recording his scenes for Bride of Frankenstein at that particular point. So. <laughs> uh, what do we make, make of the fight between him and uh, Tom Cruise? Cruise, obviously, with his supernatural, unkillable powers versus you know Mr. Cockney wrestler bloke. I enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> I just like it. I just like the fact that it was a kind of a bit of a brutal scrap, sort of rolling around, scrabbling at each other, rather than being something you know gloriously choreographed it was or anything the, like it was, that. It, it was realistic in that it was the archetypal sort of workplace tussle. Yeah. You know, two men sort of like who aren't really used to fighting sort of wrestling with each other and pushing each other over and... Yeah, mm. I liked it. I liked it. It amused me. Uh, James Corcoran uh, asks via Twitter, it would have been great if Simon Pegg and Nick Frost had played Tom Cruise and his mate. It would have been great if Simon Pegg had been playing Tom Cruise. Um, and Nick Frost have been playing Tom Cruise's mate. Perhaps uh, they can take up those roles in Brian of Frankenstein. Right? <laughs> Spiritual successor to Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> no, I've got it, I've got it. Peg and Frost can be Abbott and Costello. There we go. Done. There we go. Uh, James Corcoran continues, he says, it felt like they were caught between the Shaun of the Dead five versus a Tom Cruise generic action film uh, and a creepy, genuinely creepy horror film. Um, I thought there were some decent jump scares in this one and then it forgot to be a horror film and just turned into a, a kind of subpar Raiders towards the end. Yeah, but it, wasn't, it wasn't really horror. You're right, though, there were a couple of jumps. I did make a little eep at one point during the film. Yeah. I forget which bit. Because she's quite a freaky character. She's freakishly realised, I think, but the, 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 the jerky movements, especially mm. at the beginning when she's just come back from the dead and she's sucking Alan dry. I thought she was very good. I thought she was very good also. Yeah. I like yeah. Sofia Batella a lot. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that stuff that you've just described was actually motion captured, not not full-on effects. Mm-hmm. I think would have, she would have done that. I think she's a very, very um, proficient physical performer. Well, as we know, she's a very talented dancer. Yeah. yeah so mm. she, she would have that in her. And Javier Botte, who played um, Mama in Mama, uh, is also a very fine physical performer. He played Set. Did he now? No news on whether he played game or match. Mm. Game, game, set, match joke there. It's good. Was that a sports joke? Yeah. It was a sports oh, joke. Right, okay, a fine. Joke. Sorry, I don't understand football. Sorry, making a racket. Um, but there's also the the uh, the Shaun the Dead five. I don't quite get that it's a Shaun the Dead five, but the film tries not to take itself seriously. There's a there's a you know the moment towards the end where he goes, "It's not me, it's you." Uh, which felt really totally misplaced. Yeah. Um, but there's also little bits and back and forth. There's meant to be bantery repartee between Jekyll and Morton. Um, what do we make of that? I don't remember much repartee. It was just kind of like it was. It was. It was Crow's Crow's Jekyll kind of laying out the the backstory to this whole universe. You know, sort of the dominoes are already falling, evil as disease, and uh, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Ifan uh, on Twitter asks in regards to the mummy do you think there's any scope for them to make the dark universe darker with a bit more Logan-esque maturity or will it be a series of bland safe money spinners that everybody has seen a thousand times before hmm let me think <laughs> well actually this this was a well this is a 15, 15. 15 is certificate a 15. which 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 is relatively speaking a bold move for a big blockbuster franchise starter why do you think it was a 15 I can't think of anything particularly well, it's quite sexy, quite sexy near the start, wasn't Not it? There was really. some sort of big sexiness. There is a bit of sexiness. There, there's definitely yeah. bottom and side. There is, there is some bottom, <laughs> yes. I didn't realise bottom was criteria for 15 these days, but sure. Do we see, uh, do we see the arse of Cruise? 
I we, so. I think we did. did yeah, we? But we did, and also he was cupping himself, wasn't he? We saw the cup. Yes, yes. he was. But, yes. but Chris his, Pine, his cup runneth over. Chris Pine cupped himself in um, in Wonder Woman, and mm. that wasn't a fifteen. Um, no, so we, we think it was the bottom. We didn't see him from behind. Also, I think there was some intense horror and blah blah blah. Yeah, but yeah. Do. I'd it's, love to read the BBC BBFC note for this. Contains zombie side boob and, and genital <laughs> cupping. Now, is Cruz a one-hander or a two-hander? Because Chris Pine, and this surprised me, in Wonder Woman, is a one-hand cupper. Now, I'm not denigrating Chris Pine's genitalia because I haven't seen it because he was holding it with his hand, and obviously I was looking elsewhere. Mm. But I mean, that's. Not great if you can cup yourself with one hand, is it? Yeah, but he probably had shrinkage. <laughs> he had he just, has been just in a pool. He'd just yeah. been in a cold bath. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I, in answer to your question, I don't remember what Tom Cruise was doing, but he was in the morgue, which I believe is refrigerated, so mm. it could be excused. It could be a, it could be a one cupper. Um, but he looks bloody good, doesn't he? Who? What, naked? Cruise. Yeah. Cruise or Pine? Cruise, both. But Cruise, genuinely, I mean, my God, he's nearly 70, and look at him. He's got pecs, and he's got the other thing. What do they call the things? They, they, they bulge on the side of your neck. Trapezius maximus. That's the one. He's got those as well, and it's like, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Owl with... What the hell is this? Owl with Envelope on Twitter asks, uh, CGI was fantastic. What was your favorite effect? Um, I don't... No. I don't think it was a CGI effect, but I genuinely really liked the plane crash. Yeah. Yeah, that was well done. I also enjoyed the rats. Not that the, the rats looked good, but I quite liked that sequence where he's sort of trapped in the alleyway and the kind of rats come at him and then you've got the sort of zombified form creeping towards him. That was quite good. I don't think the CGI was anything to write home about, but um, yeah, fine. Yeah, mm. I, was, I was more, as I say, I was more impressed with the kind of the physical stuff. Mm. Right, like Vitella's performance and everything. Um, I am curious, though. I mean, that that whole plane crash sequence, I mean, people have said it, it looks like something from a Mission Impossible film, right? Mm. And Christopher McQuarrie's got a script credit, right? Mm. I'm just curious. Did they just, like, take an action sequence from what was going to be in a Mission Impossible film that Chris McQuarrie had come up with <laughs> and put it in this film? <laughs> and that's why he's got the credit. Wouldn't surprise me. No. Okay, thank you. <laughs> just, just hearing when... It's just, it's just one of those things that's been bouncing around my mind since I've seen Maybe it. you said that, but when we had Chris on the podcast, like, and he talked in great detail about some of the great like, ideas that they come up with, and they often start with a set piece and kind of hang things off it. So you've got to wonder how many of these great, great set pieces are just lying around his bedroom on notes. <laughs> and perhaps he just took one, you know, ironed it out mm. and just said, you know, cross out Ethan Hunt, put in... Tom Cruise. Yeah. And, but no. I, I can see where you're coming from. I suspect that Chris McQuarrie would rather save a kick ass set piece for the movie he will write and direct for a different studio rather than give it to uh, give it to the mummy. Mm. And also, Ethan Hunt would die at the end of that playing <laughs> play sequence. Um, so maybe. It's a, it's a really fun sequence. I think some of the other action sequences in this movie are a little bit flat, a little bit lacking in inspiration. Nick, Dissembly and not Nick Morton, after we saw the film, said, how do you make a scene in which our hero is being uh, chased underwater by a bunch of <laughs> um, crusader mummies? How do you make that boring? And it's a very, very good point. It was quite dull. It wasn't boring. I really love that scene. Mm. But that, that's got everything you love. 
Yeah. Water, Tom Cruise, Crusader mummies. Oh, people in chainmail. People in chainmail. You love Just it. Just instantly love everything if he's got chainmail in it. Yeah. I don't know. Marauding zombies have lost some of their... I mean, after you've seen the sort of thousandth episode of The Walking Dead, do you know what I mean? It's hard to... To, to feel for the sort of the mummy zombies, which seemed like a poor imitation. This was better than The Walking Dead no. for one good reason. Go on. This didn't have Negan in it. Well, yes, that is. <laughs> this didn't have a boring man in a leather jacket. Leave Negan alone. <laughs> um, okay, we'll wrap it up in a few seconds. Tom Moran asks, why didn't the captain dude, uh, good old Courtney B. fans, send more people down into the hole rather than the two known treasure thieves in the archaeologists? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't what I would call a, a great moment of, of, of judgment there. Mm. Uh, Ellen Case 47 asks is it okay to enjoy a film that is still messy and has a bad female character do you mean well I'm, I'm talking to my Twitter page to Ellen do you mean bad female character as in badly drawn or do you mean bad as in Amanette is bad uh, and does yeah I, I would say I would say yes it is absolutely fine to enjoy films that have uh, female bad guys otherwise we wouldn't enjoy things like spoiler alert Gone Girl. Although the violence at the end when he kills her made me feel slightly uncomfortable. Well, that's because the set it is a bit it weird. Had You've a got slight... this whole idea that she's kind of obsessed with him and she just wants to get this man and she needs to get this, and then she gets him and then he finally defeats her by sort of beating. And the way she curls up that's into the fetal exactly position, that. I... which I believe is a kind of, because actually you, you often yeah. found there's bodies like that, mummified bodies in that yeah. position. But there was something about the ways, like that sort of, she's protecting herself, and yeah, it had a domestic violence vibe that really didn't sit well with yeah, me. Yeah, I, I did get a little bit uncomfortable, but then I thought it was maybe me just being, you know, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm such a sensitive person that that bugged me. And uh, yeah, I think it's bugged a few people actually, which is interesting. Uh, but as we said, uh, Sophia Batella is very, very good in the role. I don't think that she's that evil, Amanette. Be honest, is she really she killed a baby at the beginning? Oh yeah, of the that's a good point. She's yeah. pretty evil. That's a good point. I, I'm, you know, I'm into moral relativity, but I think baby killing is not a good thing to do. You're right, Dan. The Empire Podcast does not condone baby killing. That's absolutely make sure that people understand that. Craig Garvey, Yell at the Abyss, asks, do you think, and this is a very good pertinent question, I think, do you think people would have been more forgiving of this movie if it hadn't been pushed so much as the start of an extended universe? Yeah, is the short answer. I think James. I mean, James's rant slash monologue uh, towards the the beginning of this of this of this little discussion was, I think, quite fair. Uh, but I think that's going to be in a lot of people's minds. I think people like to sort of, you know, if they detect. I mean, the thing is, let's be honest, right? Movies exist to make money, primarily. It's a business. What? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they want to make. You know, they want to make things that are successful that more people come and see, and then they want to come and see more things. But when that becomes too obvious, people get annoyed. Mm-hmm. It takes mm-hmm. them out of it because they don't like to think about that reality. Well, I think also there's, there's an element of uh, running before you can walk that I don't think Marvel, for example, necessarily did. I mean, they, they, they said from the off that they were building towards the Avengers, and that got people excited. And but it doesn't really it's saying that they're building towards whatever they're building towards with this a team up movie where they all fight Steve Bannon I don't I don't know I don't know what's going to happen with this franchise but it doesn't seem to have got people excited I think there's a hubris to this that just rankles and it's just and, and as I said a cynicism to it and uh, it feels like everyone just wants a piece of the Marvel formula and it's just do something different do something original mm. go out on your own mm. But I, yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree with the, uh, Craig Garvey. I think if he'd gone to this movie not knowing that he had plans to do something else and then 
you know, Russell Crowe turns up as Jekyll. You go, oh, that's funny. That's a good idea. That's really, really interesting. Uh, and then the movie comes out and you go, oh, wow. And then they announce it and you go, oh, this is interesting. I'm, now I'm intrigued. Now I want to see Javier Bardem with the the Boris Karloff. Because this is the thing, Universal hold the IP to that version of the, of the Frankenstein monster. So, you know, we're going to get the the flat skull and the bolts coming out of the neck. Presumably, I'm guessing we would. Otherwise, what's the point of holding that, that copyright? Um, then I'd get excited. But at the moment, we're all a little bit deflated. But, you know, the last time we saw all these monsters together was the Monster Squad. And that was belting. So I want to see more like that. Shane was that Black. The la- was that Shane the last Black. time? That wasn't the last time. Well, Van, Hel- all of them Van Helsing. Van Helsing didn't have Creature from the Black Lagoon or... Had a few of them, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. He had quite a few. Penny Dreadful. Mummy. Penny Dreadful. Also good. Also good. <laughs> And we won't mention The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> a film so catastrophic, it, both its director and star retired. And that was 14 years ago. That's an interesting one, my word. All right, okay, we have exhausted the questions, and I believe we've exhausted our sanity with this. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, uh, also out at the moment, in terms of spoiler specials, Wonder Woman, if you want to listen to that. Uh, our next spoiler special is going to be Baby Driver with Edgar Wright. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, do listen to the regular podcast every Friday if you don't already. Do subscribe again if you don't already. Uh, we would really appreciate that. In the meantime, thank you for listening to our spoiler special for The Mummy. Uh, you were listening, of course, earlier to Alex Kurtzman and Helen O'Hara. You've been listening to James Dyer. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to Dan Jolin farewell Chris and uh, you've been listening to Chris Hewitt uh, I am off to inject myself because I feel the change coming on but then again I am in my 40s thanks for listening see you next time bye